now introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History and I'm your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome back. Today is episode 16, The Living Daylights. We're going to be talking about a really interesting story about defections, and we're going to have my good friend on Chris Hunt. You remember him from Skyfall, one of my most listened to episodes, one of the best reviewed, one of the best feedback I got. Really good guy, really interesting guy. Fun, enthusiastic, exuberant. He's a fun dude to talk to, so it's going to be fun to talk about the movie, to get into some details. And then again, we're going to get into a really interesting story about a defection that was just a real-life story about defection that I think is so James Bond. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it and find it as interesting as I did. Also, thank you everyone that reached out to me since my last episode. Uh, So many cool things. So many people reached out to me. So many people want to talk about Bond. Um, I'm really excited. I got so much lined up for this thing. So many episodes, so many topics, so many outside-the-box topics, so many good guests, so many interesting people. This is going to be a lot of fun going forward. We're going to ramp up with the wintertime coming, with No Time to Die coming. There's so much stuff we can talk about, so many things that we can do. And uh, man, I'm really excited, and uh, I hope you guys are excited for, to come along the journey too. I'm sure anyone that has heard this podcast has already seen the No Time to Die trailer. Oh my God, it looks so good. It looks so good. I cannot wait. It's going to be amazing. I saw it once. I don't want to see it again. I don't want to see any spoilers. I don't want to see anything else. Even when I'm scrolling through IG, if I see a still, I just kind of look away and scroll fast through it. Like, I've seen it. It's amazing. You've got me. You've sold me. Uh, hook, line, and sinker, I'm in. And it's like it's not that hard for me to stay away from spoilers except for IG. Just because, I mean, it's, it's interesting in 2020 that you can control whatever you want to see. So... If I want to sit here and watch all of James Bond stuff, I can go to YouTube, I can go to podcasts, there's so many different content creators that I can go find my own medium. Or even with news or outlets or current events or anything like that, I can completely control now who I listen to, who I get my news from, where I want to. And if I do the research, there's a lot of interesting things out there as far as YouTube and podcasts. I don't need to rely on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or any of those things. Yeah, So my day is basically just... Dad duty, gym, work, uh, podcast, YouTube, Pornhub. And that's about it. That's about my whole day. And one day my goal is to have Pornhub uh, be a sponsor of this, uh, this podcast. Because I would do such a good promo for it. I think that Quantum of History and Pornhub would be a great marriage. You know? I could do a great spot for them. Like, if you're like me, you like boobs. And where do I get my boobs? I always trust my boob content with other than Pornhub.com. Pornhub.com the best boobs in the world are go to pornhub.com backslash activate backslash premium and get one free month of premium and tell them that quantum history sent you that's pornhub.com backslash activate backslash premium and type in the keyword quantum let them know that quantum history sent you put them in there get one free month of premium on me quantum history yeah yeah that's gonna work that's gonna be a good that's gonna be a good sponsorship so maybe i'll email and see if i can uh, wrangle up a sponsorship but I think I think on that note, um, we'll move on to the actual episode. So we're going to bring in my good buddy Chris Hunt, uh, talk about Living Daylights, one of my surprise loves. I love this film. Um, so good. So many. I'm definitely going to have a. This is going to be ripe for a multitude of episodes because there's so much good content that come with this movie. So the first time, we're just going to do some defections. We're going to talk about the movie. We're going to bring in my good buddy Chris Hunt. Um, you know him. You love him. You saw. You heard him on Skyfall. He was so good. Uh, Without further ado, Chris Hunt.
Welcome back, Chris Hunt. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Like I said, last time I've got, I cannot tell you how much good feedback I've gotten from our episode. Um, what, do you know Luke from uh, the Bond Bond Apartment? He's just him and uh, James Bond AU just started a podcast. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Blunt Instruments. He was like, that's the he said. Yeah, uh, your episode was their favorite one. So, so oh, you got- fantastic. Well- well, thank you for having me back. That's lovely to hear because honestly, it was just us r- ranting about Skyfall. I'm glad that actually, you know, some people actually enjoyed it. I assumed after five minutes it'd be the oh my god, they're chatting complete bollocks. Let's sign off. <laughs> no, it's one of it's, it's. I think it's my third or fourth most listened to episode so far, and I I can't believe it either because I was like, this is just nonsense. Only like the people with the <laughs> biggest bond sickness are going to listen to this shit. But no, I'm not no. lying. I'll take it. <laughs> so welcome back. I'm I'm sure everybody's excited to have you. I feel like you should just run the podcast, and I can just be your sidekick, or maybe I'll just edit your podcast. You can just have this one now. Well, I'm not gonna lie. From the last one where we got all the wonderful photoshops of me as Ariana Grande, I'm I'm looking forward <laughs> to what's gonna come out of this one. <laughs> but no, I'm, I would, I'm definitely couldn't take the podcast from you. I don't have it in me. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been up to? What have you got going on in the Bond world? I know you're you're. Uh, your IG has taken off, and I know you've been doing a lot of collabs and stuff. What what have you got been going on? It's kind of weird. Like, last time we chatted, I was just kind of getting into the game, um, having met with you a few online events, etc. Um, yeah, and I've just been um, just meeting up with people. Well, I say sorry, meeting up. We're all stuck indoors. Now I've just been um, chatting with um, some lovely Bond folk online. I've been doing, uh, been talking a lot with uh, the Bond brain. Um, know him quite well. Obviously, um, Burb James Burb is one that comes up very frequently. That's always popping up. And it's um, yeah, meeting lots of people mainly through um, uh, David Zeritsky's um, uh, Fle- uh, Fleming Reading Challenge at the moment. That's mm-hmm. the one that's kind of kicking off all the social stuff for me but um yeah just that and i'm um, buying a insane amount of james bond ties at the moment and it's <laughs> storage is storage is getting weird <laughs> your tie stuff is so good man it's always lovely to post i love it because it means i can go to work and i'm like nobody knows except me and I, that's that's always just such a <laughs> such a nerdy but fun experience exactly <laughs> right so when i wear my big james bond hat big james bond tie it's you know obvious but when you can do it like you're doing it it's way better yeah, subtly. Although, to be fair, I'm not sure there's many teachers who that do that sort of thing, so I'm, I'm not going to bring too much attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> See, my, my secret bond moment is always my uh, shoulder holster. So I'm the oh, only, one, only one that does that, but it's, that's, my, that's my little secret nerd bond moment that I do at work. Well, that's actually, it's very nice of you. You sent me some stickers and a golf ball um, for mm. just, you know, collaboration stuff. And I, the golf ball is very proudly perched on one of, uh, one of my shelves at the moment. But I love your stickers. The fact you the holster is so prominent. It's yeah. so you now. And I absolutely love that. <laughs> yeah, the uh, Ruben from Toys of Bond did that in my graphic. And I, he did an awesome job with it. I, gave him, I told him what I kind of wanted. And he came back with that. I was like, perfect. Yeah, he absolutely smashed it. Yeah. So today's topic is going to be the living daylights. I got to tell you, overall... What does this rank in your pantheon? It changes on like a daily basis. I honestly, I don't know where to place this film because when I watch it, I have a great time and I really enjoy so many different aspects of it. But on reflection, I'm like, oh, you know, it's just, it's just missing something. But then when I watch it, I'm like, oh, I forgot that moment. That's such a good moment. Oh, that this, I'm looking forward to this scene. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know why this film bungee bungees around so much for me. How about yourself? So it's not one mm. that I would be like. I, it's one of my least watched, but I appreciate it a lot. I don't know what that means, but I, uh, and as far as like coming from the historical perspective, there's so much cool stuff in here to, to, to digest. But I think my problem yeah. is always Timothy Dalton for me because Timothy Dalton is such a low-ranking Bond for me. 
how interesting. So it's, I don't know what it is for me. I can't, I really appreciate his performance and I really enjoy watching him on screen. Um, I feel like it's just kind of a mix between trying to be the serious Bond they wanted, but still a bit of a hangover from the Roger Moore era. And I can understand why it's in your probably least watch because it's so close to View to a Kill that you can't stand going in any, anywhere near it. <laughs> I imagine it's just, that's poison to you. That's it. it, it anything before or after View to a Kill, anything that touches, you know? <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's weird. Dalton comes up a lot as a really sort of a fragmented thing in the in the um in the uh, fandom. Not many people really know where to sit with him. I I really love License to Kill. That's one of my favourites, and I quite like him in Living Daylights. But there's a few moments where it's just a bit too forced with his performance, like um the whole car chase scene when he does like the optional extras line. Like you know, yeah. Roger Moore probably would have killed it with Dalton. It's just like no, you know, <laughs> you know, in real life, Timothy Dalton just would suck to hang out with. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Do you imagine having a drink with Timothy Dalton? He'd just be like, I don't, I don't know. Oh, this drink is just cold. <laughs> like, okay, I mean, yes, it's cold. I, I, I like it cold. You don't like it cold? Not really. Yeah, Tim, you could have had it without ice. <laughs> yeah, I know. He, he's, he always acts like he's uh, Batman. <laughs> it's it's that and the, the intense brow, I find. It's a very intense oh, brow. It's a caterpillar on but I must say, Yeah, just a bit. But I must admit, like um, I read into a bit about him, and he really wanted to go back to the Fleming style of Bond, which, of course, in comparison to Roger Moore, was huge. Like the comparison is massive. So I can appreciate what he's trying to do. It's just, I don't know. Is it like it's possibly too jarring? He might have been bizarrely ahead of his time because it's kind of what Craig has done really well. And I think I don't know. It's it's interesting. Um, I still I still like his performance, but it's um, it's certainly a unique perspective on the bond uh, franchise yeah i feel like Dalton, it's just so forced like you can't be that angry about it all the time like what are you what are you, <laughs> what are you so mad about dog <laughs> like, like i get it it's, like there's some stuff going on but how, what do you think about the overall plot line overall plot is one of the strongest elements i think um i really feel it starts to lose traction a bit after they're in the uh, russian air base in afghanistan mm-hmm. there it kind of loses it a little bit for me and then it comes back in at the end yeah. Um, but the first initial part, I absolutely adore. Like the whole trying to smuggle Koskov out, and then how that starts to turn. That's one of the standout moments in the franchise as like a plot point because it's so just engrossing because it's it's proper espionage. It's proper like you could imagine some elements of it actually happening in real life, and that I absolutely love that bit. Um, yeah. But yeah, then then the air base bit it gets a bit too like oh we need an action set piece. Let's get a plane. Let's get some explosions. Um, and then quite a cool ending with Whitaker. So um, yeah, that's. I'll probably put it eight out of ten for um story. How about yourself? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the. That's what this episode's gonna be all about. Is about a real life defection that almost mirrors what happened with Koskov, and it's such an interesting plotline. It is like, like you said, it's one of the highlights of this movie and of this franchise. Is this part where so what a great what a great storyline it goes, and then again, it goes to the Mujahideen, which I think is interesting, all about perspective, right? In the 1980s, they're martyrs, they're heroes, they're rebels, and then fast forward, and it's poignant that we're saying that we're doing this uh episode on 9-11 i mean yes you, you fast yeah. forward it and now they're the pariahs they're terrorists they're all of that so it's it's a it's a it's a good look into really it's about perspective for one man's martyr is one man's enemy you know so mm. i think that this episode really really exen- really exemplifies exactly that so that's what i love it for as far as the historical piece and i heard that I read a, a really good book called Ghost Wars. It really goes into Pakistan, Afghanistan, and all that, and how 80s and and even today you see it with China, where you're not seeing Hollywood make the Chinese the bad guys. It's always still the Russians or anything like that because there's a vested interest in the in the keeping the Chinese government happy. 
And I think these movies and, and I think Living Daylights is a great time capsule of what the paradigm was and what culture was at that point. So that's one of the reasons why I just love this movie so much. Hmm. Yeah, as you say, well, obviously your podcast, Quantum of History, the fact there's actually such sort of relevant history, not only then, but still now. Yeah, you make a fantastic point. I've not really considered that before. And the main, uh, the Bond girl did an amazing Playboy spread. So again, <laughs> it's good. Oh, and that, that just brought it right back. That's it. You give, actually, you give me hist- history and boobs. I mean, that's, that's really <laughs> the only two things I do in life. Now, I'm going to be a bit controversial here. I'd say Cara is one of the worst things about this film. I really can't stand her in it. Yeah, you know, in her performance, I'm going to give you, like, I would almost almost give you Denise Richards a little better than her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd possibly tend to agree. Um, it's just the issue is, for someone who's meant to be so sort of like, you know, at the beginning, the fact she's a sniper, cello, uh, cello or that sort of thing, you imagine it's going to go somewhere, and then she just falls back into the trope of like, James, or that sort of yeah. thing, like very, very Tanya Roberts. And I think the bit that really irritates me, every time I see it, when um, uh, Bond's trying to get away in the Hercules... And she drives up in a Jeep and he looks back and spots her. And all she does is just bloody smile. Just gives him a grin. Like, what the hell are you expecting to happen? It's so irritating. Yeah. Yep. And like, she, she's just sitting there. I'm like, oh. How do you feel about the cello? The the, uh, um, the sled cello? <laughs> it's, clearly a, it's clearly a device. I mean, it's really there just to make the plot happen. Um, and I'm not going to lie. The, the car chase, as corny as it is, is still pretty good. But then, like, ending it on the cello, it's just... Gee, like oh my god wow. like, how do you go to- bits of this film that still clearly got roger moore dna in it and that's one of them yeah it, it is it's it's you're gonna either you gotta be pot committed you're either gonna go all one way or the other so you can't have this timothy dalton who's angry about everything again this bro you need to he need to lighten up just a little bit you know he just can't even deal with the even when he lands on the boat and he's a little smile and then nod with the phone i'm like it just doesn't he doesn't do it he doesn't pull it off that's why he's one of my worst ones but mm, i can completely understand that to be fair and then you ride. Have you? When I was a kid, we used to ride down uh, hills with the with the hoods of cars. So I guess it's kind of the same thing. I don't know if you guys do that in England. Um, we um, basically use like wooden pallets if we find them. Like lots of <laughs> pubs around here use them to carry stuff. So mm. we just nick, nick it from that, go up to the nearest hill, and go down. It's sh- terrible for splinters, but pretty good enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> the fun of being broke. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. What did you did you like Whitaker too? Out of curiosity. Oh, uh, I um. Oh, what's his name? Danny? No, Joe. Something. Joe Baker. Joe, Joe Don Baker. Joe Don Baker. That's it. Um, I absolutely adore him in this film. He's just the right amount of lunatic, and I think the film suffers from you're not re- you don't really know who the true bad guy is mm-hmm. at all. Like it's kind of Koskov and Whitaker and then henchman Necros. Um, it could have maybe had a bit more of him being the overall focal bad guy, but every time he's on screen, he kind of steals the show a bit, which I quite like. Maybe a bit too over the top, but. I don't know. It, it worked for me. However, you're American. What do you think about the, the representation? <laughs> I thought he was a cornball. I love him. I love him as Jack <laughs> Wade and Goldeneye. And uh, even a little bit, he kind of even cheeses it up in Tomorrow Never Dies. But I love him in that role. In this role, I can't stand him. Um, really? Like, I can't wow. stand him in this role. I just don't get it. But I, 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 the cool idea is if you're going to be an arms dealer in ties, with that whole plot line could have been cool. But they just made it cheesy, corny, and the guy plays with, you know, Civil War dolls or whatever. And I don't know. It loses his menace. And I feel like for an arms dealer, they could have made him a lot cooler than than what he ended up as. 
The one bit that gets me about him in particular, you know the scene where um, Bond first goes into his, um, I don't know, we'll call it mansion, chateau, whatever you want to call it, and you've got all the historical figures with his face. Were we meant to like actually believe that he was standing there and he convincingly looked like a wax figure, or were we meant to know it's him the entire time? Because that shot always looks really like poor editing it's just like yeah. no, it's like oh there's max waters and then there's clearly him and he's like oh surprise what the hell are you talking about it's clearly you the entire time it's like when my my four-year-old does plays hide and go seek and says i'm a statue <laughs> okay oh, well, shit, a, you got me yeah i know right i have to play it off to my four-year-old but i'm not gonna play it off in this guy like this is supposed to be again serious <laughs> stuff and you're gonna play a statue like a four-year-old like no come on I now want to see a version of Living Daylights where everyone talks to Whitaker as if he's four years old. <laughs> <laughs> just everyone, just one big game of statue in the field. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. It shows why he's wearing the bib when he's eating the lobster because he is literally a four-year-old. That's it. Perfect. That's it. That's it. We figured it out. All right, makes sense now. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, like I said, it's it's one of those times that. Uh, I, I appreciate it for what it is. It does not on my most viewed, but I. It's one of those movies where maybe not. Maybe it's not the best, but I appreciate it for what it is. So that that's my overall take of Living Daylights. Is I appreciate the film when it is. It's just not one of my most viewed ones. Yeah, I kind of the same. It's it's probably on my low. It's, I think it definitely makes top half. Um, but yeah, it's one of my least watched just because I'm never really inclined to put it on. There's always like if I watch that, I might as well just watch tomorrow never dies um mm-hmm. something which i enjoyed this a bit more um and also the issue is with dalton it's always a comparison between living daylights and license to kill and i really enjoy license to kill so i'm always going to pick that if i'm in the mood for it i can't believe you really enjoy license to kill it's another one. <laughs> oh, i love it Do you i re- really enjoy oh, it I, it's it's probably oh. the most unpopular it's probably the my most unpopular bond opinions that i think license to kill is brilliant but yeah i always, <laughs> I always get some interesting reactions to that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel like License to Kill is a good movie in and of itself, but it's not a good Bond movie. You know what I mean? Like, again, it, 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 I think that the other problem is that I know Florida, and I <laughs> Florida sucks. <laughs> and yeah, like, have, having it in Florida and the whole bar scene and honeymoon. Yeah, <laughs> nice honeymoon. Um, yeah, no, I find with us. That's a weird one because it's like it's it is basically like a Miami Vice episode. Essentially. It is. It is. Yeah. But I guess, mm. you know, teach their own, right? So is there anything yes. else you want to add about what you're doing? Anything more coming down the pipeline from Mr. Chris Hunt? Anything else we can expect from you or your IG or uh, well, at the moment, it's just kind of uh, continuing on with the um, Instagram stuff, uh, basically. Um, it's kind of weird, because as, as we talked last time, it's quite nice having an outlet where I can actually be like, oh, here's Bond opinions and not having people mocking me. Uh, so that's been quite nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, yeah, just doing as much stuff like this, just enjoying it. Like, it's something I'm really enjoying. And the fact, that, uh, well, I have to say thank you for inviting me on again. It's been absolutely fantastic to be on. Absolutely love it every single time. Well, I was actually going to wonder, because I know that you're a big fan of um, Anna, obviously. Oh, sorry, um, uh, Anna Diamaris. Like you're huge, you're 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 cr- you're you're basically crush. We say. My my boo boo, my bae. Yeah, that's before it. All, uh, Have you seen uh Before all else, <laughs> did you, um, did you see Knives Out? She's pretty prominent in that. Yes, I did see Knives Out. Can I need Daniel Craig to stop doing Southern accent? No American. It was so. No American so talks like that. No American. Where did he hear this? It's like Foghorn Leghorn from Looney Tunes. Uh, I say, I say, I say, boy, I say, boy. There's been a murder. Where did, so where, like who does he Leghorn. ever heard that talks like that? 
Well, that's the thing. In Britain, we kind of assume you all sound like that. Oh my god! And then when he does his, uh, <laughs> have you have you seen Logan Lucky? It's even worse. No, I haven't. I haven't. But I've heard very, very many things about it. It's horrendous. And Daniel Daniel Craig. I feel like you know how um, you know how Americans and British imitate Russians, and Russians are like, that's not how we sound. That's how Daniel yeah. Craig's mate sound does his uh, southern impression. Like no Russian is like we, we do not talk like this. No one in the last year sounded like this. That's how we intimidate. When Daniel Craig does a southern accent, I'm like, no one, no one sounds like that. Please stop. They, I know, they must. I, I said, please stop. He must. He, I don't know who lets him do this. He must have like a thing where I just really like doing a southern accent. And every time I'm like, no, who's ever his handler, who's ever his publicist, be like, Daniel, you're not allowed to do that anymore. All right, you either talk British or you don't talk at all. <laughs> yeah it's like maybe how, how much money can i get away with with the most with like the least believable accent how much can i really feasibly get away with before i start getting called out on it <laughs> you're only you, you, you get a couple passes with those bond fans but i'm not doing it again next time you pull <laughs> off that southern i swear if he tries the no time to die in a southern accent or if he does any kind of quips i'm gonna lose it i'm gonna lose it right there uh. Could you imagine? He misreads the success of his last two films and starts to bring it into No Time to Die. Oh, God. Well, well I say, I say, Anna, it's good to meet you, Mr. Armas. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, no. I say, I say, I say, Ms. Armas, you're a delight. <laughs> I said, the name is Bond. I said, Bond. I said, James Bond. <laughs> I say, I say, I say, Bond, James Bond. <laughs> 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 well, again, I, I think on this, I think that's the note we're going to end it on in our lunacy and our ridiculousness. So, Chris, thanks again for having me. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming so, on. Can, thank you ever so much for having me on again. It's been an absolute pleasure, Donnie. Thank you so much. I'm honestly looking forward to the next one. Let me know what film you want to chat. All right, can't wait, buddy. Thank you, Chris, for coming on. It's always so much fun to talk to you, and uh, it's always so much more fun to talk bomb with somebody else rather than just stare at my wall and, and talk about it by myself. So that's what we're going to be doing for, coming forward, and I've got a lot of people that are, have reached out and want to talk about movies. So, again, anyone that listens in, if you want to come in, do the same thing, talk with some Bond, uh, just get me on my IG at Quantum of History, talk to me, tell me what you want to do, and uh, we'll go from there. And and this was, one of my, this was probably my favorite story that I've researched so far, um, in addition to the Robert Maxwell, just because it's so current, but as far as a uh, historical thing, this was my most interesting and one of my most fun that I had actually reading a story about somebody. So there's a real-life defection of a Cold War um, of Nikolai Fedorovich Artemonov. I'm terrible at Russian names. Uh, but he was later called Nicholas Shedrin. He was born in 1922 in Leningrad of the Soviet Union. Now, Nicholas Shadron was sent to Frunz Naval Academy, where he received extensive training in nuclear missiles. Now, the Naval Academy is a prestigious school where Shadron was also enrolled in as a commander course, and he was groomed for special distinction. Nicholas excelled in his studies. He was described as a gregarious man who, who filled up the room with his presence. And he worked his way up to being a commander of a Soviet destroyer by the age of 28. Now, Shadron was a part of an excursion in Indonesia to help arm and train naval officers of Sukarno's regime. Sukarno was a military hero and the first president of Indonesia. 
In the late 1950s to early 1960s, Indonesia was in flux, and there was a, a power struggle in the area, and there was a debate on whether Indonesia was going to become a communist nation or stay uh, democratic, which was, again, in that area in the 1950s and 60s, it was, you know, the Red Scare, and it was a common theme throughout much of, of the area. And as a result of this debate, Soviet, Chinese, and American agents, double agents, spies, and resources were abound in the area. Shadron was ported to a Polish naval base in Odesui. Um, the Polish and Soviets were training Indonesian in the anti-submarine warfare. And so the Soviets funneled billions of dollars to the Sukarno regime in hopes of keeping it a pro-communist paradigm. So Shadron was well on his way to becoming the youngest admiral in Soviet history when, of course, he met a girl. In 1958, at a party in Gidnia at the Officers Club, Shadron met a beautiful Polish medical student named Iwa Gora. The two instantly connected and, uh, and fell quickly for each other. So Shadron would leave his ship on many occasions to go clap those cheeks, and uh, he would go without permission. So this angered command, Shadron's insubordination was noted, but you know, Shadron was, was clapping those cheeks. And uh, like everything, every every story, it was about a girl, right? So he was determined to marry Iwa. As Shadron continually ventured off to meet Iwa, CIA emissaries were abound in the area. So Shadron would continually venture off and he would leave the ship to go meet with Iwa. But also in Poland, many CIA emissaries um, were also in Poland because this was, Poland was one of those places where... It was, you didn't know where it was going to go. And it's a Soviet place, and there was a lot of spy activity in the area. So they, when they keep seeing Shadren, who was a commander and a high-ranking officer, keep coming out of that ship, they thought, well, maybe, maybe there's a chance we can get this guy. So the goal was to defect Soviets and to extract them for intelligence purposes. So in Shadren, they found a man that could be swayed for the cause for his love of Iwa. The only way that Iwa and Shadren could have a life together was to defect from the Soviet Union to America. Now, Iwa later tells the story of a man named Pernoma, or Pernomo, who could often come to dinners and meet with Iwa and Shadron. Now, it's believed that Pernoma was a CIA emissary that was handling um, Shadron's defection. So the CIA and Shadron worked out the details of his defection. So Shadron was going to defect for the cache of naval documents and commander reports. These documents were treasure troves of intelligence into the Soviet naval operations and capabilities. So a lot of the time in the Soviet Union in America, no one really knew how much the Soviets were capable of. And we're going to talk about later in um, other episodes like the space race and stuff like that. No one knew. Again, it wasn't, it, the information wasn't as easily and reticent available. So no one, you could just, like the Soviet Union was, as one movie called it in The Good Shepherd, a bloated cow. No one really, everyone was scared of it, but no one really knew its power. And China now today... China's kind of got the same mysterious lore to it. Like, you don't know exactly what China has or what they're doing. Um, North Korea, kind of the same thing. These hermit kingdoms where they have, we're not allowed in there. And there's not a much information sharing. And Soviet Union was kind of the same thing. We didn't know what they were capable of. So they were just dying for information, just dying to know what they were doing. And these, these naval documents were part of that. They wanted to know what their capabilities were. So in addition to Shadron would work as an intelligence specialist in Washington and help decipher raw intelligence. In return, Shadron would get a lump sum of money, a full defection, and citizenship to the U.S. Iwa would be given full citizenship, and the, US, and the CIA would also pay for her to go to dental school. These terms were found to be agreeable. The caveat would be that Shadron would have to make the arrangements on his own. 
The CIA wasn't going to go in there and, and, you know, rescue him. He had to defect on his own. So the agreement was that the CIA would meet with him after he had fully abandoned his post with Iwa and crossed into Sweden. The plan was made for Iwa and Chadron to leave by boat to Sweden on the 7th of June, 1959, at 19.30 hours. The boat was driven by a 25-year-old Soviet sailor named Iwa Popov, since he was always the one tasked with operating the 22-foot boat. Chadron told his superiors that he was going fishing with Iwa. Chadron then commanded Ilya to drive the boat to his directions, on his directions. Ilya had far less rank than Chadron, and as such he was forbidden from asking direct questions to the superior officer. Chadron gave Iwa clear instructions to come only with a coat and a handbag. Everything else had to be left behind. The trio landed 24 hours later in Olan, Sweden. Chadron began asking villagers in English, Police? They were ultimately brought to the police station where they began the process of informing them that they were defectors. Phone calls were made, and before long, Chadron and Iwa were aboard a plane with a CIA escort from Stockholm, Sweden to Frankfurt, Germany on what they called a black flight. Due to the length of time it took to arrange flights from Stockholm, it, it was clear that the flight was already prearranged. They had a plane waiting for them. Um, they tried to play it off like they were surprised by Chadron's arrival and defection, but, I mean, it was clearly planned out. So once in Frankfurt, Chadron was taken to a safe house in the city, where himself and Iwa were interrogated for three weeks, given polygraph exams, physical exams, psychological exams, an interagency defector committee accepted both Chadron and Iwa. So they were then flown to Virginia, where they would spend nine months under 24-hour surveillance. In that time, Chadron was questioned and prodded for Soviet intelligence. Chadron proved to be everything that the CIA had hoped for. He knew the workings of naval operations. He knew of the Soviet anti-submarine program. He knew of the overall workings of the Soviet Navy. And on occasion, Chadron was brought to Norfolk, Virginia, where he was given command of a United States destroyer to show how the Soviets would operate a destroyer. I mean, that's pretty interesting that they actually took a defector brought him to an actual U.S. destroyer, and he would go around and he, he gave into naval intelligence how a Soviet would, would operate a ship or how a Soviet would go about doing this or how a Soviet would do all this. Um, and really, really interesting story. And in June of 1960, Chadron began working as a consulate for the Naval Scientific and Technological Intelligence Center. It was there he worked closely with the CIA to decipher high-level naval intelligence. Iwa finished her dental school and Chadron graduated from George Washington University at home in Arlington, Virginia, and really they were living the American dream. Everything was going well until the CIA brought Chodron before a house committee on an un-American activities under his real name, Artonomov. But like, I mean, how could they be so soft? But again, this is what happens when you rely on elected officials who think they know it all to try to go into police work or, you know, all these other things, these high-level things that they have no idea what they're talking about or what it goes to, the intricacies. But boy, do they think they know everything. So he, they were brought under Artemov, his real name. So Chadron testified before the House, but he was also testifying to Soviet observers in the meeting. Because these meetings were open. This was a Congress. This was open to the public. The Soviet Union would have their own people vetted in there to try to get these committee and try to get these hearings, which were open. So upon the mentioning of his name and his face, the Soviets were immediately aware of what happened to one of their most famous defectors. Shortly after this testimony, Chadron was relieved of his position with the STIC. Chadron spent several weeks unemployed until being offered a much less prestigious position with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, here, Chadron worked under low-level defectors, translating meta-defector for the Soviets. He was basically just someone who spoke Ru- uh, Russian at this point. It was droll work, and it was far beneath Chadron's talents. 
This changed when a new plan was concocted to make Chaudron a double agent for the KGB. This is where the story gets really crazy. Chaudron has been relieved of his post. He's down, um, and it was well known that there were all sorts of spies in Washington, D.C., looking for their chance. Just as the CIA saw Chaudron when he was walking out of their base and walking around Poland with this girl, when he was downtrodden and it came out about the CIA kind of letting him go, now the KGB sees their chance, right? So there are three versions of what actually happened here. The first one is told by Iwa, where Chaudron was approached by a KGB agent in Washington in 1966. The KGB agent was trying to recruit Chaudron to continue to work with Washington, but also feed the Soviet secrets. Chaudron was then informed the FBI of this contact. The FBI instructed Chaudron to accept their offer and began working as a double agent. The second version of what happened and how this KGB meeting actually came about was that this um, was to- is the one that's told by American intelligence. So the FBI had become aware that KGB agents were lurking around their offices in Washington looking for possible double agent targets. The FBI, knowing that Chaudron was one of the highest defectors that they had, would be, a t- would be a prime target and used him as bait. So the KGB agent named Oleg Kozlov approached Chaudron at a bus stop at the corner of Lee Highway and Harrison Street in North Arlington. The KGB agent is said to have produced photos of his first wife pleading for him to return home. Now, the third version is the one out set out by the Soviets, where they say it was Chaudron who approached a Soviet embassy employee at a supermarket and asked to be returned to Russia. The KGB agreed only under certain circumstances that Chaudron would have to perform a, a series of tasks that he would be allowed back to the Soviet Union. So those are the three stories based on three different um, perspectives of what actually happened. But And then here's what happened after the meeting with the KGB agent. So after the initial contact with the KGB agent, it is not known what the Americans hoped to gain by their involvement within this ruse. Chaudron was already blown, and a more famous than any defector should ever be. He led a humble life in Washington. He walked around living a seemingly normal American life. By that time, it seemed hardly plausible that Chaudron would have been trusted with much information on the Soviet side. The only benefit from this involvement would be the exposure of KGB agents, and even that seems hardly a prize worth dangling to a high-level defector of Chaudron's talents. But that's exactly what they did to Chaudron. They used him as bait. So the KGB were specific that they wanted to know from Chaudron how the United States was obtaining their intelligence in Soviet naval matters. In order to perpetuate, perpetuate the ruse, it was important that they give Chaudron quality information. Now, the experts on the Soviet side would be able to decipher clear lies and false documentation. To combat this, Chaudron was given soft information to give the Soviets, not false information, just just soft stuff. So Chaudron never consulted with his wife, and she did not know the double agent ruse that Chaudron was in. In 1971, Chaudron was brought to the next level of double agent espionage. A KGB agent contacted Chaudron and wanted to set up a foreign meeting. The reason for the meeting was not given, just that the meeting was required. Initially, Finland was proposed, but it was later determined that Montreal, or Montreal, would be a more beneficial... I just like saying Montreal. This is one of my favorite cities to talk about. Also, if you ever have a bachelor party, you need to do it in Montreal. Okay? Go to St. Catherine Street, cross Pont Champlain, and go to St. Catherine Street, have your bachelor party there. You will never regret it, and I promise you that. Okay, back to the story. So, they decided that Montreal would be more beneficial for KGB. This was agreed by both parties. It was determined that if Chaudron were to refuse the meeting... All contact would be lost forever and the mission would be aborted. Chaudron hated his job with the DIA and was eager to gain back his prestige. 
This was an opportunity to do so, so Shadron agreed. Shadron told his wife he was meeting, going to meet someone who worked for the United States of 25 years, and off to Montreal he went. At the meeting, a photo was taken of Shadron and the KGB agent as they took hands, and you can actually Google um, the photo of it, you can see it. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, I guess it's a pretty famous picture now. At the meeting, Shadron was informed that he would soon be in contact with an illegal in Washington with special intelligence equipment. Now, an illegal is a KGB agent that has embedded himself in a country, assumed a new identity, and is working not under the protection of diplomatic immunity. To uncover an illegal would be invaluable to the CIA and FBI. It's one of the highest goals of intelligence community to uncover one of these illegals in their network. I mean, these guys are the double, double, double agents that you've never, you never know, never hear about in the news. Um, this is the, the upper echelon of espionage. So the KGB went dark for a time with Chadron, and it was not known if the bait was bought. However, this changed in 1972. Now, tell me if this sounds familiar in any storylines. In 1972, a radio receiver transmitter, a cipher code inside a book with hollowed pages, and instructions on secret writing methods was delivered to Chadron House. Basically, the, the lector. <laughs> Basically, they gave him the lector and told him how to use it. Remember, I don't know if you guys have heard the, for anyone that heard the From Russia With Love episode, basically they gave him a cipher machine and they gave him the codes to use it and how to use it and instructions how to use it. So basically gave all the cheat codes to uh, to Mike Tyson punch out. Later in the year, Shadron was contacted again, this time to travel to Vienna to receive special training on the machine given to him and to perhaps meet the illegal. Shadron and Iwa flew to Vienna where he made contact with the KGB in Vienna. The trip was planned out so that Chadron and would go to Madrid, then Munich for the Olympic Games, then Vienna to meet with the KGB handler. Once in Vienna, Chadron stayed in the luxurious Bristol Hotel. After checking in, Chadron made his way to Rendezvous Point, where he met with agents for 18 hours. It was here where he was trained on how to use the secret equipment that was delivered to him. Chadron left Vienna without ever meeting the illegal. Then it was two years of darkness for the KGB after this meeting. Chadron was told that the illegal would meet him upon returning to Washington. That never transpired, and a long spell of no contact persisted. Chadron was left still at his droll job in the DIA. That changed in 1974 when he started getting odd phone calls at his residence. On one occasion, he was contacted and told to meet someone in Arlington. Chadron did not show up to the meeting because he was unable to contact anyone in the FBI or CIA to vet him or to watch his back when he went there. In 1975, he was contacted again at his home and told he would receive a message with a secret ink. The message would be postmarked from Oxon Hill, Maryland. The message asked if he could again meet and where. Chadron picked Spain, but that was rejected. It was determined that Chadron would pick Vienna again. Prior to Chadron's departure for Vienna, he was met by a CIA agent that introduced herself as Anne Martin. Now, Ms. Martin was in her early 40s, spoke fluent German and Russian, and informed Chadron that they would meet again in Vienna. Ms. Martin was going to help facilitate this transaction and act as Chadron's handler. Ms. Martin gave Iwa two phones to reach her once in Vienna. On the 17th of December of 1975, the Chadrons checked in once again to the Bristol Hotel in Vienna. Chadron then left for the meeting with the KGB contact as Ms. Martin stayed with Iwa at the hotel. Shortly after, Chadron returned to the hotel after the meeting and informed Ms. Martin what transpired. Chadron informed her that they had a lunch at a small restaurant where he was told to come back for another meeting in two days. Three days later, on the 20th of December, 1975, Chadron left for the second meeting. 
and this was the last time that he was ever seen alive. The FBI and CIA still bicker about who was supposed to be watching him, if at all. It was feared that both parties had any surveillance, it would ruin the operation. So Chatham was left on his own to handle the situation on his own. Iwa was left in the hotel room to wait for her husband to return. As time went on, Iwa grew more and more fearsome something got terribly wrong. She tried to phone Ann Martin, but Ann Martin didn't answer the phone that night. It wasn't until much later in the next day that she was able to reach Ann Martin to inform her that Chadron had not returned. After a couple days, it was clear Chadron was not coming back. Iwa was brought home without her husband. Once back in Washington, she was informed that her husband was working as a double agent for the government. At the time, Gerald Ford was the president, so the Ford administration tried to pull its weight to find out what happened to Chadron. The Soviets denied all responsibility and knowledge of the incident. Secretary of State Kissinger tried, Ford tried, and later Carter tried, all to no avail. And prior, to, prior to this, Chadron had a um, trial in Soviet Union without him being present, where he was um, convicted of treason and condemned to death. So in hopes of getting Chadron alone and kidnapping him, the elaborate plan was brought to fruition by the KGB. Chadron died by accident in the execution of the kidnapping, uh, as a result of the chemical agent. So that, that's the theory that basically what happened with Chadron was that this whole ruse was that they wanted to get Chadron back so they could punish him for defecting because he was one of the highest ranking defectors to ever leave the Soviet Union. So they had this elaborate plan and once they got him alone, they kidnapped him. But in the course of the kidnapping, they used a chemical agent to sedate him, but they used too much of it and in the course of it, Chadron died. It's one of those stories where you read it and you're like, boy, you, you didn't see that, that was a trap? You didn't see that was probably not, not going to end well? Um, but they kept dangling that illegal in front of them. It was like this mysterious thing that, you know, oh God, you know, what if it is, what if it is? And it's, it's kind of, it's such a James Bond story, isn't it? Like he just like, all right, well, I just love the challenge of it. So I'm going to go for it. Um, even though it's clearly a trap and in the end it, it, you know, it cost him his life. The KGB still denies it. The Soviets still deny it. Americans say, we don't know, it wasn't our job, FBI, the whole thing is shrouded in secrecy. No one really knows what happened. Um, and those who actually do happen, we're probably never going to hear the real story. But I just found that story to be so cool, like such a James Bond story to me. So next time you watch Living Daylights, you can be like, well, this stuff really did happen. I mean, not the cello. Not, don't try to run down a mountain on a cello. It's probably not going to work out very well. But everything else, these things really did happen, so... Eventually, I'm going to talk about the Mujahideen in another episode, and that's going to be another really interesting episode to do. So, uh, like I said, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you found it as interesting as I did. Thank you again, Chris Hunt, for coming on. Thanks for everyone listening, everyone that follows, everyone that subscribes. Thank you so much. Follow me on Instagram at Quantum of History. Um, and again, I'm excited for No Time to Die. Let's get ramped up. Got a lot of episodes coming up. I cannot wait for no time to die. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming in. As always, stay positive out there. Enjoy your day. Thanks again.